0: Number one, there's not a perfect system out there, period. There's not going to be a single system that's going to, to do everything that you want it to do. So you need to decide what's important to you and what's, what's going to matter the most. Um, number two, the system won't fix your problems. There's process and there's systems, and you have to separate the two. If you uh, try and get a system and make it customized to your process, and your processes are awful, like if you automate a bad process, it's still a bad process, and chances are good it's going to be worse. And so, if you if you take your processes and and you align it with the system, that's going to be your, that's going to be one of the biggest steps that you can take to improve the entire the, the entire model. Um, but systems are not processes. Processes are not systems. You need to separate those two and and, and uh, improve your processes. But that's that's the big deal.
1: Welcome to We're Only Human, a podcast focused on blending research and practical advice to help today's HR, talent, and learning leaders improve business outcomes. Let's welcome your host, Ben Eubanks. Hey, everybody. This is Ben Eubanks, host of We're Only Human. Glad to have you here today. We are going to have a fun show. It's going to be really interesting, and I'm excited about it. Um, So we're here in San Francisco... Oracle Studio at uh, Oracle Open World, and we're talking to different HR leaders about some of the things they're dealing with, some of the, the challenges on the technology side, some of the things they're doing there. And so I'm really excited to welcome Wade Larson. He's the director of HR at Wagstaff to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So first off, tell us who you are and what you do. Thanks. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I've am i been with Wagstaff for about three
0: and a half years, and in terms of my background, it's uh, it's all... You look at my resume, it's a little scattered. I, uh, I, I have a, a, a background of uh, working for, I'll, I'll say, uh, doing the real job and then going back and in, in forth into consulting, right? So <laughs> over, the course of, uh, over the course of 25 years, uh, I, I go back and forth into doing real HR, if you will, and, and consulting. I like to say that I, I go apply what I, what I teach, <laughs> and then I'll go out and share that with, with companies and uh, help them do better. But over the course of the last 25 years, I've done work with over 250 different companies. Wow.
1: That is awesome. Yeah. So much fun. Well, I, I started my career in HR as well, so I'm like the practitioner side. I'm still firmly rooted there, and, and they keep me grounded. I have lots of uh, lots of good friends in that space, so that's that's good. I like it. We're not all bad. No, not no. all bad. Not all bad, for sure. <laughs> so tell me about the work that Wagstaff does, because I kind of read the intro about the company. I thought it was really interesting, because I worked, my parents own a machine shop, and so I've done like the finishing parts of some of the work that you guys, you guys You tell what you do first, and then I'll- Sure, it's a
0: 74-year-old family-owned company. We're on the third generation of ownership, Uh, getting ready to transition into the fourth generation. And we did start as a, mach- as a machine shop back in the day, and uh, we've grown since, as you can imagine. But we're a global manufacturer in aluminum casting equipment. And uh, so anyone who's familiar with ingots and billets in aluminum, we don't make the ingots and billets. We make the equipment that makes the ingots and billets. So uh, as I simplify it and, uh, and say, we make stuff so other people can make stuff.
1: That's awesome. And I, like I said, I, so now it makes more sense for me to launch into my story, right? My parents owned a machine shop. And so the final pieces of aluminum that we would machine and mill and rent the lathe, and everything else to get a finished product to a customer. Like we did all those things after one of your customers had already made a piece of aluminum basically. Right. So that yep. was, that was, uh, kind of cool to see that connection there. My, my claim to fame was making not of aluminum, but, uh, I still have all my fingers around a punch press for a long time. That's right, you, you, kept, you kept it all safe. Oh, goodness we, gracious. You know, we,
0: we don't make the furnace, but we make everything outside of the furnace uh, for the casting part uh, with the molds and the tables and everything else uh, that, that we sell to, to the manufacturers who make the ingots and the billets. And so about, uh, about you know two thirds to three quarters of our business is international. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to anywhere uh, any of our customers in uh, one of 58 different countries around the world.
1: Okay. Would I be correct in assuming you have employees? elsewhere as well, uh, we, that? We,
0: You know, most of our employees are in Spokane, Washington. Okay, very good. Uh,
1: cool. We do have uh, an operation
0: in Hebron, Kentucky, uh, but we also have uh, operations, uh, you know, some little offices in uh, in Russia
1: and Dubai and China. Okay, very neat. Global company then, you check that box. We did, okay. check it out. It check matter. it. So you guys are using Oracle HCM Cloud. We are. And one of the things I want to ask you before we get into some t- the technology conversation, so you told us about what the business does, Can right, you give us some insight there. Um, I'm curious, are there any industry specific things that you're seeing around talent challenges, whether it's recruiting or other areas, retention, I think that you guys are dealing with from an industry perspective or a company perspective that's kind of unique maybe that might be worth, uh, worth talking through?
0: Well, who, who isn't uh, feeling the pinch on the, on the global war for talent, right? Uh, but you know, when it comes to, to, to us, I mean, I've got two sides of the house. I've got engineers. And I have the trades, and okay. you know, on the engineering side, we've spent the last two decades building that strong relationship with the local universities uh, to create that feed for the mechanical engineers, the electrical engineers, and and so we have a good, strong relationship, and we're a destination employer for the engineers, and that's that's great. It doesn't mean that it's not a challenge. It just means that we have a good feed, but where uh, where the the schools have have uh, really. Uh, um, struggled if you will is that we focused so hard on this four-year educational process that we've uh, really let go of this education in the trades welding machining um, mechanical designers and so when you take a look at the pool that's out there we don't have enough welders and we don't have enough machinists or designers you know with a two-year degree uh, to fill the needs we have a massive shortage and I'm not just talking about Meyer my area. I'm talking yeah. about, you know, systematically throughout the country, throughout the world, we don't have enough welders and machinists, anyone in the trades for that matter, yes. to fill the needs. And so in terms of the, the trades, oh, yeah, I just this last year, for example, you know, we needed 30 welders to, to hire 30 welders in a short period of time. And I could single handedly created a, a war for talent in my own local local area. You've got
1: a target on your back over there.
0: Uh, I, I, I did. You know, I had to make the piece uh, after the fact, but it was uh, it, it's it, it's not a unique challenge to me. But that means that uh, from our perspective, we also have to develop these uh, new new strategies and relationships uh, working with K-12,
1: working with community colleges, working with the universities. It's a multifaceted approach. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm always encouraged when I hear employers that have gone out of their way to make that connection with a, with a university or with a college or even with a, a technical school, right, trying to find a new pipeline for talent because a lot of companies – wait till they're out and then go try to fish in the pond after someone else if they're smart has already gone through and picked the best and brightest and they're left with whoever's left and so that pond is empty yes yeah,
0: we, we need to put more fish in that pond and, and you know at the k-12 level we've, we've cut the, uh, the the budgets uh, we've gotten rid of the, sh- the shop classes we've gotten rid of the welding classes we get rid of those and, and just now we say well we'll create this new special high school mm-hmm. and Uh, But but they'll create that special high school and we'll say, look, you know, we we have to, uh, you're going to have to go away from your friends to go Mm -hmm. to this special high school. And we create a stigma on it
1: that, uh, you know, this is for special kids. Yes. that was the word I was going to use. Stigma is the word I was going to use because you get seen as, oh, well, they can't get a a real job, right? So they're going to go over there and get this alternative track when instead... Some of those welders are probably making a lot more than people are coming out of college and, in those first couple of years. And that's that dirty
0: little secret is that they're gonna come out in two years making you know, in, in, in small rural areas, 45 grand a year debt-free practically. Yes. And uh, where the four-year college student is going to come out with sixty grand or or more in debt, making what thirty-five thousand dollars a year, if they're lucky. Right, Uh, first job's always tough. I mean, it's and that and that's the that's the thing. But but the the bad advice they're getting through high school from the career counselors and from the teachers is you got to go get your four-year degree, and parents have heard that for their whole lives, and so they're telling their kids now, you don't want to go to to to, to technical school or the two-year college. You got to go get your four-year degree. And so here we are is, I mean, we have trades and and apprenticeship programs that go and fill. and, and And the secret is they will not only pay for their education, but they will pay them while they're in school to go get the education, be paid as a tradesman and a journeyman to go get the education, come out debt free with cash in hand. Being able to make in you know in a in a in a non-rural area in, a, in an urban area, these guys can walk out of school making fifty bucks an hour. Yes, and I'm not joking. No, you know? no. fifty bucks an hour before overtime, <laughs> debt-free, with this two-year degree. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So
1: anyway, I, I digress. That was a little tangent, but uh, that's my push for the trades. Well, I, I think that's a real problem, though. That's why I want to ask that question because I think that's a very real problem that touches a lot of people right that's yeah. i've seen my parents struggle with that and they own a small machine shop they struggle with with finding these people they they find lots of people that say they can do it yeah. then they ultimately can't, right? Or they want to push a button on a machine and hope that it does all the work for them. They don't know how to do the manual piece of it. So,
0: we we, we think these are dirty jobs. Or that they're for these uh, these dumb kids? Well, these dumb kids are are uh, more you know the uh, the the machinists are more computer programmers than anything. These these folks have to do math in their heads that go out to six decimal points, and we expect them to do spatial you know spatial uh, calculations in their head, and and that's the kind of math that they're doing for these you know these, these folks that that have this stigma, these are smart folks working with, with million dollar machinery
1: that we put them in front of. And that's the expectation that we give them. Awesome. Awesome. I have one other question actually for you, because you said family business and I'm curious about that aspect of it. So I don't think I've ever talked to someone that's works in HR for a family business that has been through those transitions. Yeah. Any advice or insight you can give someone else that works in a family business is thinking about that. Um, again, it touches close to home for me, obviously, but I'm, that's one thing I've always been really curious about is you hear the horror stories, like, oh, it transitioned to the next generation and everything fell apart. But you said about to be fourth generation, right? Yes. Let's transition again. So any advice for, some, for someone that's in a family business doing HR and trying to think about that succession piece?
0: Plan ahead, plan ahead. And, and when I talk about we're in the preparation mode, we're, we're years in advance, we're planning ahead. Mm. Uh, so right now we, we have the fourth generation who's working for us, but if we waited till the last minute to, to make the transition, then it would be a disaster. Uh, right now, we do have the fourth generation working for us, and you know, both of them are, uh, are, are have been working there for a few years, and and they are uh, still a few years out. Right, the third generation is our you know the president and uh, CEO of one of the local operations. They're going to be there for a few more years, but while we're doing that, the third uh, or the fourth generation is, uh, they are working uh, on the finishing up their master's degree this year. They're in active uh, leadership development. Programs. They're working their way through the ranks. They're earning their uh, their their credit their street cred. Yes. Uh, going through the process, so they're not just actively uh, placed into positions, but they are earning their street credibility through the ranks, and, and we're actively sending them to development courses, uh, you know, through the years. But that's that's through a planned process, so that they can get to know the people, get to know the the the, the business as they go along. So when when uh, they do take over, then they've been they've been there done that instead of just being placed in the position yes and that's what it takes
1: i was going to say one of the one of the favorite my favorites kind of leaders in the space that talks about family business says you got to work twice as hard to get the respect if you're a family member, right? In those kind of instances, you said street cred a minute ago, I think it's a great way to put it.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, when we take a look at it, we have two, you know, one was one was married into the business, if you will, he, he married the daughter, and the daughter's not a you know not, not an active manager, but he is, and, and he has his mechanical engineering degree, so that adds some street credibility. But even he has to work twice as hard because he's new, right? He's, he's new to the business. Uh, the son, who's who's there, he's great, you know, great, great person, but everybody's known him since he was the young kid. And, and overcoming that, he's working three times as hard, four times as hard, and he's doing a great job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, from a family business success, that's what it takes, and both of them are on track, but, it, but this takes planning, and this takes strategy, and both of them are doing a killer job at this, and they're gaining that respect, and everybody recognizes that. But this is years in the planning. You can't just do this overnight or say, oh, we,
1: we, we need to transition uh, within 12 months. You cannot do that and be successful. Thank you for obliging me on that tangent, because that's something I'm really curious about. And I think that's, again, same thing. I think that's gonna help a lot of people that are curious about that piece of it and want to know they're working on those businesses, or they're trying to handle a transition like that. That same thing applies in any transition, but doubly so in a family kind of space. Yeah, yeah, you got to plan for those things. And most companies, when you see all the data are not doing a good job of succession, they, they're, they're not preparing, they're not planning ahead, they're not developing that bench strength of leaders, all those pieces of it. And you can't just hope. You, know, you can't just wish it's not going to work.
0: No, and at the same time, just you know, to wrap that thought up, you have to do this throughout the entire organization. You have to build a strong succession planning program, develop the competencies, identify those, those competencies, create the gap analyses, and, and work it through the entire system. All right.
1: I have worn you out, and now I want to talk about technology a little bit. That's hey, let's okay. get going. I, okay. I,
0: I, we're keeping you up. Let's All go. Right.
1: Let's do it. Okay, so. There were two different pieces of the puzzle I want to talk about on the technology side. So the first one is business case. Mm-hmm. I talked to a lot of HR leaders, a lot of business leaders, and they're like, hey, I think we need a piece of technology or we need to change what we're using, but I'm not sure how to approach the leadership team with that business case and what, how to build that, what sort of data I need, those kind of things. I'm curious about how that looked at Wagstaff.
0: There are two pieces of data that, that any HR leader has just got to, to use when, when they're building a business case for new technology. One is the, the cost of time, and one is just the cost of cost. <laughs> you know, in terms of the cost of time, any time that there's a process that's involved that involves not just HR, but managers, we need to calculate what that cost is. Any time that a manager pro- creates a new process, fills out a new form, provides a new requisition, any time that there's an approval process, that's going to take a new minute, two minutes, five minutes. When you have a multiplier effect that, uh, that involves more than one manager, we need to calculate that out. How many times does that manager have to touch that form, uh, process that form for every new employee? How many new employees do you process a year? Have that multiplier effect, and then you need to multiply that by the average cost uh, uh, hourly cost per year. And we, cannot, uh, we, can't, we can't forget the uh, uh, percentage cost on top of that, right? It's not just the hourly cost of the wage, but the benefits cost you start running the multiplier effect for what the average cost per minute is on process, it gets really spendy really fast. And so anything that we can do to streamline those minutes, and, and you understand the multiplier effect, time is money. And so when we start talking about processes, right, processes and systems are two separate things. When we can separate those and understand what it takes to streamline processes, and, and identify what systems can help us to streamline the processes, we start talking about the reduction of cost. That's your, justifi- that's your key justification. Now, when I say the, the reduction of you know, cost is cost, well, you know, how many systems do we have? In HR, most of us have you know, ATS is over here, onboarding is over there, performance is over here, LMS, if you have one, is over there. Hey, let's do everything live. Well, you're gonna do live training how many times? 20, 30, 50 times to deliver the same training when you could just do it once, capture it, and run it through the LMS. What's the cost of a person's time? I can have a single person giving the same training 50 times a year. What's the cost of that versus if I just package it up once and run it through an LMS and have that person watch it? You start calculating these nuggets of time. Now what if I could cap- put that under the single umbrella, such as a, you know, whether it's Oracle, whether you know, whatever your system is. Uh, what's the cost of that? You start calculating personnel time versus the system time? Like this is how I got, how I got this system in the first place. I had a training manager who was retiring when I start uh, identifying. Well, what's the cost of the, that training manager? There, just as his salary, salary and benefits cost, right? Take that total cost. And I say, here's what I'm working with as a base. That's a chunk of money. When I use that to say, hey, look, I'm going to use this to go shopping, right? Then all of a sudden, I have a chunk of money to work with. When you start understanding what the cost is, right? It's pretty easy to start making some justifications. Mm. Now when we get into this process and this is it's tangential but it gets to the whole point when I start making the business case and I start evaluating where can I start saving time like my punchline and this is you know not, not being aware of our time that we have left here's my punchline by the time we get done you know, I, I separate process and systems right but just looking at process itself by streamlining the systems wrapping them all up together in a single system and so I have a one-stop shop to go to I, I, I stop wasting time trying to search uh, of where everything's at. Uh, I, I, I start streamlining systems to, to get processes to flow in one, in one, in one package. I start uh, you know, start saving steps. Instead of going to 20 steps, I go to 10 steps. Or instead of 10 steps, I go to 5 steps. I start streamlining these processes. Like in a single year, I cut my admin time by 25% in HR. In a single year, I'm able to cut my, my entire manager's admin time by 10%. That's all managers by 10% of their admin time by, by doing these process improvements. What's the, what's the value of that time? It gets pretty easy to justify cost when you start understanding those two factors. Number one, you know, time is, time is money and then money is money.
1: It's a masterclass right there.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Those are the two factors you have to work with.
1: Big picture. Awesome. Okay. That's exactly what I was looking for right there, by the way. Um, one more question and then we'll wrap it up. That's okay with you.
0: Yeah, that's that's okay. fine. I figured we we're getting close, so I wanted to get to I, the punchline know. pretty I'm, quick.
1: I well, I'm wearing you out with questions. And, and by
0: the way, if you if you need to reach out to me,
1: wadelarson.com, you can uh, I'm mean, pretty easy to find. Okay. Awesome. I'll make sure to get that in the show notes too. All right. So, the last question I have for you is kind of an extension of that business case piece. Once you figure all this out, you've got to get kind of a team around you to help you make the selection. Yes. You should not do that in a in a bubble. Right? No. You should do that and then go and approach everybody else. Talk about figuring out who you need in the in that loop with you, um, kind of pulling them together. Uh, I'll tell you why. So if we just did some recent research on companies that have selected at your technology, and one of the big things that came away that I came away with was that high performing companies, those that have better revenue, employee retention, and employee engagements, good good metrics to consider, those companies that had those metrics, we're more likely to have a diverse selection team. The companies yes. that did worse in those things, were more likely to just kind of HR makes the decision and then takes everybody else and tries to get them to buy in, which is often hard to do. It's its own problem entirely. So talk about building that selection team out and how to get those stakeholders kind of in the, in the loop. I've taken both approaches, and I will validate that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, whenever, we, uh, whenever we've taken uh, the, the first, you know, the, the one approach where HR selected it because we thought that was, was fantastic and it looked good to us, um, you're right. It, it was HR making the decision and we were forcing it on No matter how good the system was, it, it, was, uh, it was taken as, as that was HR system. And so we were easy to blame for the failure. So uh, with the whole resistance to change, but anytime that we had multiple fingers in the pot of the selection criteria with the committee, then it was a group consensus and there were more people to blame. And as long as everybody recognized that they were represented, then they had to own it mm-hmm. and they had to make it work. And, and that was the part of the consensus process there. This last time, you know, the, 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 when we took on Oracle, we looked through over 30 full demos. We looked at 60 systems, sat through 30 demos, and we settled on Oracle at the time. And here's what I come up with. Uh, these, these are the basics. Number one, there's not a perfect system out there, period. There's not going to be a single system that's going to, to do everything that you want it to do. So you need to decide what's important to you and what's, what's going to matter the most. Um, number two the system won't fix your problems. There's process and there's systems, and you have to separate the two. If you uh, try and get a system and make it customized to your process, and your processes are awful, like if you automate a bad process, it's still a bad process, and chances are good it's gonna be worse. And so if you, if you take your processes and, and you align it with the system, that's gonna, be your, that's gonna be one of the biggest steps that you can take to improve the entire, the, the entire model. Um, but systems are not processes, processes are not systems. You need to separate those two and, and, and uh, improve your processes. But that's, that's the big deal. Uh, but number three, whenever you adopt it, what you, whatever you've got, then make it work. And that's, and that's your big push is to make, is to, is to make it work. Um, when you're on board, you, you, you drive it and you go. But here's number four, if it's not working, you fire you fire the people who's uh, who, who are not making it work, and you go find the solutions that are going to make it work. Uh, we uh, had to make some changes on our implementation team, and uh, you know we had to make change. We, we switched over to some some uh, team that ma- did make it work, and that made all the difference. So don't just linger around saying, "Wow, this is terrible. What are we going to do?" Let's try and slap duct tape on it. No, make changes. Go. Figure it out because you can't hinder your business performance on uh, on people that are making up excuses.
1: The uh, the process one, I always say, if you automate a bad process, you can be really efficient at making their own choices, making their own decisions.
0: Right? You know this whole uh, think autonomously. Well, you know what? You can have a whole bunch of bad processes thinking
1: autonomously on their own. Yes. Yes. So. Wade, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you hanging out with me for the, for the show today. You bet. You bet. My pleasure. Absolutely. Awesome. I'll make sure to get the link in the show notes to the All website right. so they can reach out to you if they want to. This has been Ben Eubanks, your host. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to We're Only Human. Please take a moment to share this episode with another HR leader who might see it as a valuable resource in their daily work. For more information about the podcast and to see all our show archives, please visit upstarthr.com.